Your eyes and your vision are under attack, damaging blue light from the sun. Your phone, your computer, your tablet, even light bulbs and car headlights is constantly bombarding you. The good news is our eyes actually already have a line of defense to counter the effects of blue light. This defense is made up of three pigments called carotenoids. MacuHealth with Micromycel, the only supplement with the exclusive patent on all three macular carotenoids and Micromycel technology. With more screen usage and indoor time, myopia, also known as nearsightedness, is increasing and getting worse in children. Now, certified eye doctors can prescribe MySight one day, the first and only FDA-approved soft contact lens to slow myopia progression in age-appropriate children. Visit coopervision.com to find a Brilliant Futures certified eye doctor near you. OIE Broadcasting is the emerging leader in social media. We use scientific entertainment to drive more patients into your office. Visit oiebroadcasting.com and sign up today. Welcome back to part two of my interview with Dr. Mark Bartlett. In this episode, we continue our discussion on strategic supplementation, as well as ways to improve healthful longevity. If you're new here and you like our interviews, press like, subscribe, share, and hit the bell. Also, please leave comments. Be sure to watch our full-length documentary, Open Your Eyes, on Amazon Prime, Apple TV, iTunes, Google Play, and YouTube movies and shows. I want to bring us back to a little bit more on some of the minerals. Uh, magnesium, something that is very common as an eye doctor because people come in with a lid twitch and uh, many times about 70% of the population, maybe a little bit more deficient in magnesium or they have these terrible leg cramps. I remember many years ago, I would wake up in the middle of the night with this leg cramp and it'd wake me up and I didn't realize I was magnesium deficient. I started taking magnesium, my leg cramps went away and my eye twitch went away. I also had an eye twitch as with a lot of my patients. Yeah, it's amazing, isn't it? The things that we're learning. Um, and my wife just swears by magnesium for helping her to sleep at night. Um, so, you know, it sort of really highlights again. 500 we, enzymes, 500 enzymes. Yes, that means yes. 500 functions. Yes, exactly. And so that same triage is going on. And magnesium, uh, what I find really interesting is that uh, I went to a seminar one time and there was a magnesium expert and she was asked to look at, um, at chronic fatigue syndrome and, uh, she was, didn't know anything about chronic fatigue, but as she looked at the symptoms, and we know it's a syndrome, so it's not really sort of uh, necessarily one cause, but uh, she, the more she looked at it, and she views magnesium in terms of bioenergetics, that magnesium is a very important enzyme in the ATPase, right? So the ATPase is kind of like this windmill that sits on the, electric, on the, uh, the cell membrane of the, the mitochondria and uh, takes advantage of the... Um, uh, proton motive force, right? So it's kind of almost like a, uh, I guess you could say a, uh, uh, a hydroelectric dam, right? Where the protons are flowing through this ATPase and magnesium is a critical part of that structure. So marginal deficiency can cause all sorts of bioenergetics issues. Um, and, you know, some of these things are also important for the structure and the folding and the, and the uh, integrity of the the actual enzyme proteins that we're talking about. So zinc, for example, is in hundreds of enzymes and not just as a cofactor, but that also as a stabilizer. Two, over 2000, I think. Yes. yes. Yep. So keep going with zinc because it's so important for our immune system. Exactly. Um, what I find really interesting about zinc is that it is also a cofactor for DNA polymerase. So as an immunologist, I'm fascinated by this, that. Uh, um, something like 75% of the population, men and women, don't get quite enough zinc in their diet. You only need about you know, 11 to 15 milligrams a day, but we don't quite make it without supplementation. And uh, um, so the body will use it in a triage system, a la Bruce Ames, uh, but marginal deficiency, I believe, will impact the immune system. So you think about uh, a virus or a bacteria coming along and your body needs to defend against it. And you have uh, trillions of, uh, you know, maybe about a trillion T cells. And interestingly enough, when we were born, there was all sorts of genetic um, sort of swap, swapping going on. So that each of the T cells is a little bit different. It has a receptor on the surface that looks a little bit different. It's just a brilliant system where something that your body has never seen before will be recognized by maybe one of those T cells. Not all of them, but one of them will have the right lock 
for that key. And when that virus, that bacteria finds the right, you know, when it's met by that the receptor on the T cell, then the T cell obviously can't fight this antigen alone. It needs to clonally expand. And so in order to do that, it has to um, send a trigger to the nucleus saying, okay, multiply and divide, make a clonal army. In order to do that, of course, you have to make, you know, every time a cell divides, you need to make a copy of its DNA. And uh, if we don't have DNA polymerase, then that cell cannot cause, form a clonal army. You're marginally deficient in zinc and your immune system is, uh, is just way behind the eight ball. I believe that that's why so many of us experience so commonly, you know, uh, symptoms of cold, flu, whatever might come along. Um, until I really started looking at this, um, you know, I used to get a bad cold and be away from work, you know, four or five times a year every winter. And I can honestly say that with good nutrition, the paradigm has shifted. Every now and then I'll feel sort of a bit of a post-nasal drip and I go, oh, I must have a cold. But it's not enough to, to uh, keep me home or away from work or the things that I love. So, uh, you know, it may be zinc, it may be other components of nutrition, but I think it has a huge impact on our immune system. Same with vitamin A, very important for our immune system. And people, a lot of times they put beta carotene in some of these multivitamins, but they can't convert it into vitamin A. Yes. And vitamin D is also interesting, right? So, um, you know, I remember that uh, when I was first a PhD student and my, my focus was on autoimmune disease and I was using animal models of uh, multiple sclerosis and my professor and, and, you know, we'd have our journal clubs and my professor would always say, isn't it curious that uh, these epidemiological studies that they've shown, that they've done, show that if you're born in the tropics and you live there until you're a teenager, you are far less likely to get, say, MS, which is one of the focus that we were de dealing with. This is back in the 80s when I was doing my PhD. And, uh, and we thought, yes, because if you're born in the northern climates, then uh, your incidence of these autoimmune diseases was much higher. And we thought, what's the reason? And we don't really know why people develop autoimmune diseases. We thought maybe it's molecular mimicry or something. So a virus comes along and it looks a little bit like maybe that protein in your body. In the case of MS, it's the myelin basic protein. So we thought, well, maybe the immune system got confused and then started to attack its own nerve cells. Uh, but then, it, as you know, I can see you leaning forward, Kerry, because it's so interesting that it was only in the last 20 years we realized that it's all about sunlight and it's all about exposure to sunlight and, and sunlight and, uh, is uh, helping to create this, this vitamin that then actually seems to help you to defeat these uh, autoimmune conditions where the body has become confused. It's incredible because vitamin D, which is really a hormone, uh, is an immune regulator and it actually increases serotonin. And if you're low in vitamin D, you might have an increased risk of being sad, depressed, anxious. Yep. Yeah, exactly. So, you know, some things that look so obvious, I mean, I thought, boy, I could have been that brilliant postdoc back in the day and said to my professor, of course, it's the sunlight, it's vitamin D. But, you know, some things are right in front of our noses and we, and we don't know. You know, Jack Cruz is, is in our movie and, you know, he really brought to light how important it is to be out in the sun because, yes. you know, you know, Americans, we're not out in the sun. We're, we're sitting in front of a computer all day. We never get any sun. So it, it really is very important to get sun. When, when I was in making the movie and we were in Costa Rica, one of the things that surprised me the most was the centenarians, you know, people that would live over a hundred, they would, they were in the sun from the minute they got up to sun to sunset and right. they were in the sun all day long yeah there needs to be a balance i mean i love that we can protect our sin, skin with sunblock but uh there's there still needs to be a balance right we we use sunblock and we wear clothes and hats to obviously prevent cancer which is a serious issue and especially in australia where you know we have these white european skins and we've got twelve thousand miles of beach line so it's important to protect ourselves from the skin and there's certainly an aging impact uh, from the sun. I mean, there's certainly an aging impact, but there's a balance. We certainly need some to make that conversion, uh, get vitamin D and have other benefits. So um, just like everything, I suppose, there's a balance, isn't there? We need it to find sure out is. where that balance is. And, 
And speaking about the balance, let's talk about vitamin K2. That's one of the, the new ones, uh, you know, vitamin K2 that could protect, uh, prevent against calcification of our arteries and protect our heart. And a lot of uh, people are not getting enough vitamin K2 and they're starting to add that to the supplements, to the, multi, to the multivitamins, the good quality ones. Yes. Uh, again, it's sort of things that we can learn from um, the diversity of our diets around the world, right? Where the Japanese, for example, are eating foods like natto that we never get here. And there's just, um, you know, I think uh, we need to be adventurous, don't we? Um, you know, those, uh, I love, I mean, what were those, what were Captain Cook's guys complaining about with sauerkraut? I love this stuff, right? It's full of uh, healthy bacteria and it's got this nice tangy taste. But uh, I think, again, you know, I look at my children. Uh, I have eight children. And so I've been through this sort of uh, uh, with all of them, this like, yeah, I just I won't eat anything that's got color. Right. <laughs> it's going to be white bread and cauliflower. Um, you know, I think as Americans in general, we don't uh, we don't have a very adventurous outlook on our foods and our diets. And, and uh, I think that, uh, you know, again, it's it's really it's a nice thought that we can get everything that we need from from the food that we eat. But I think that the diversity of the food that we eat can solve a lot of these issues. Well, I want to see if we can get sailors to eat natto. If you've ever smelled natto <laughs> or ever tasted natto, that's not a very pleasant food unless you've gr grown up with it, I would say. Just the consistency, right? Yep. <laughs> okay, sometimes a pill is easier. Yeah, sometimes a pill is easier. But, but vitamin K2 is, is very important. I mean, we need vitamin K. It's very protective. Yes. Yeah, exactly. And, I, and again, I love the dedication of the nutrition researchers around the world, how they focus in on things and they help us to appreciate that, you know, just vitamin K, there are different forms uh, and, uh, you know, the different forms of the B vitamins and, and you know, where's the balance there? And again, uh, you know, I find uh, a lot of people ask me, should I be eating all organic vegetables? And so I generally ask them, well, how many vegetables are you eating a day? And they're like, yeah. So I say, well, focus on how many you're eating first and then, and then sort of uh, become a purist, right? <laughs> that's, that's a good point. Uh, you talked about how do we measure if somebody has enough nutrients in their body? Uh, there's certain labs that you could do. Uh, you know, SpectraCell has a lab, uh, Great Plains, Genova. Uh, but there's also, there's also a hand scanner uh, which uses Ram, Raman, uh, Raman spectrometry. Can you explain a little bit about the labs and an easy way of, uh, uh, of this hand scanner? Yes. Um, yeah, about um, the story began about uh, 15, 20 years ago when a, uh, a researcher, a physicist from uh, the, uh, uh, the physics department, Department of Bioptics Bio at University of Utah contacted us, one of the people in our company, and said, hey, come check out what we've done. And they had uh, uh, in their lab this very complex looking piece of equipment, huge. They had a four foot argon laser, had to pour liquid. Okay, okay, we're ready to scan you. They had to pour liquid helium onto the uh, liquid nitrogen onto the scanner to cool it down and then say, okay, scan here. And uh, so the first person from my company scanned the hand and they got a number. And the professors, it was Gellerman and, and, uh, and his coworkers, uh, kind of looked at the number and then they sort of secretly talked to each other and said, what's going on here? Would you scan again, please? And so, you know, Nathan scanned his hand again and uh, they saw that same high number. They're like, what the crap? What's going on here? And then they finally said, well, what do you eat every day? That's like the highest score we've ever seen. Uh, and he said, well, you know, I take these supplements. What's in the supplement? Lots of carotenoids. Ah, that makes sense. So this was a, uh, they had uh, basically used Raman spectroscopy to measure carotenoids in the skin. So in their early experiments, they took uh, some skin from um, uh, tummy tuck patients, right? And then they froze it in liquid nitrogen and crushed it up and put it in through a spectrophotometer through HPLC, measured the carotenoid levels, and then compared that to the work that they were doing where they were shining a, a blue light into the skin, you know, the same skin from the tummy tuck patients and seeing, uh, you know, how that measures carotenoids. So this was a, a huge breakthrough where we're using light, where uh, a narrow band with the blight around 472 nanometers actually um, sort of tickles the carotenoids and causes them to reflect back in the green. And of course, the intensity of the green tells you how many carotenoids are there. Now, carotenoids are kind of unique because they're this uh, um, 
carbon-carbon double bonds, like they're conjugated double bonds for you know 20 or so carbon. So you've got this long string of conjugated double bonds. Every second bond is a double bond. And if there are any chemists uh, watching, you know that that's kind of a special situation. Because if you have uninterrupted uh, uh, sort of S2 orbitals along this molecule, then you actually have a cloud of electrons, delocalized electrons running back and forth. So that's what gives carotenoids their color, the orange, the yellow, the, you know, the, uh, the red. And these carotenoids that we get from our diet, they're about 600 in nature, but we commonly eat uh, I don't know, at least five or six, right? So you've heard of beta carotene, the orange one. There's also alpha carotene. Uh, there's lutein, it's a yellow one. There's zeaxanthin, a yellow one. There's lycopene, there's, that's the red one, right? So the tomatoes, the oranges, um, even the green leafy vegetables that you eat are full of these carotenoids. Uh, they, uh, they look green, that's only because of the chlorophyll, but you, know, you think about uh, autumn time, when the chlorophyll is stripped out of the leaves, you see the true colors that are there. Those are the carotenoids. And it turns out that uh, even though they're not on the World Health Organization list of vitamins and minerals that are essential, they are definitely bioactive. They are lipid soluble. They protect the membranes of your body, much like vitamin E does against a, a free radical attack. They communicate with your genes in the sense that uh, if you have an oxidized uh, carotenoid molecule, then it can send a message to the nucleus saying, hey, you're under attack. There's a lot of oxidative stress going on here. You need to produce more endogenous antioxidants. Um, even uh, lycopene is interesting. Uh, I think it was Lester Packer that discovered that, uh, that there's a direct relationship between the concentration of lycopene in the cell and the number of gap junction proteins, which are really important communication type cells uh, so that small molecules can pass between the cells that are touching. And in fact, cancer cells have far fewer of these gap junction proteins. So um, carotenoids are pretty essential for your health. And they are, you, if you're eating a diet that's rich in fruits and vegetables, eating a colorful diet, like an artist's palate, then you're going to have healthy cells in your body. But how do you measure that? Uh, and we've found, you know, Kerry, there's a direct correlation between the ability to measure something and the ability to change behavior. So you think about um, cholesterol, you probably know what your cholesterol level is. And we now know sort of the types of things that might make unhealthy cholesterol levels or healthy. Um, but you, every year I do a, sort of a metabolic test, right? Where they look at uh, blood lipids, cholesterol being one of them, HDL, LDL, the rest. They look at uh, other things too, of course, uh, inflammatory markers, and they look at blood glucose markers. But uh, um, who you know, you wouldn't take a statin drug or you wouldn't change your diet or lifestyle if you didn't know that cholesterol was high. It's kind of similar with carotenoids. Unless you know that they're low, it's kind of hard to get motivated to do better. So uh, we spent about $70 million in, in uh, reducing the size of that greenhouse technology into something that looks more like this here. And this actually uses Raman spectroscopy to measure carotenoids, you know, a 30-second scan, and you kind of have an idea of where you are compared to people that eat 10 servings of fruits and vegetables every day. I had a podcast yesterday with uh, Dr. Professor and Dr. John Nolan out of oh, Milford, Ireland. Yes. And he's using that hand scanner. And he was telling me how wonderful it was for, for him and his research because he is now able to be in a very quick way to, to look at the carotenoid levels. And yes. of course, carotenoids are very important to him for, lut for lutein, zeaxanthin, and mesozeaxanthin in the center of the, of the macula for prevention of age-related macular degeneration. So uh, how about any of the blood tests? Are you, are you interested in any blood tests for the micro, micronutrient tests? Have you looked at that spectrocell or any of those type of tests? And do you have an opinion on any of those? Um, yeah, they seem to be fascinating and interesting. I, um, I've sort of focused my attention in other areas. Certainly, um, um, you know, the standard blood tests can be really important for things like vitamin um, D, for example. I mean, for how many years were we told, oh, these fat-soluble nutrients, you need to be so careful because they accumulate in the tissue, they can become toxic. And, uh, um, you know, I don't think that there was enough systematic studies using blood tests, right, to find out, you know, what is your A status? What is your D status? What's the average American look like? Are you getting too much? Uh, it turned out, you know, we sort of reached a bit of a, um, 
an epiphany about 10 years ago, right? Where we realized, oh, most people aren't getting nearly enough of some of these fat-soluble nutrients. And they're, they're recommending, you know, 2,000 IU a day or more of, of vitamin D. Um, so we sort of went from, uh, you know, like red alert, these are dangerous, stay away, to, you know, don't take a supplement, it's dangerous to, um, you know, doctors that actually monitor these things with the blood tests saying, you know, you really should be. So I just love that we're starting to become more aware. Um, I'm not, I, I'm aware of SpectraCell as well. Uh, I've not really sort of looked very closely at, you know, the comparison between that and sort of the standard blood type test that we're doing for these nutrients. You know, like the, this Genova, Cyrex, Z, Z, RT, Great Plains. So there are different ones that some of the yeah. functional medicine doctors do. But let me ask you, how can we tell, and I, I asked this question to John Nolan, Professor John Nolan yesterday, because in his lab, he's done research where he looks at different supplements and to see what's on the label, if it's actually in the supplement. And he found that about 70% are not. How can we tell, because supplements are kind of like the wild, wild west in a way, it's kind of like food. How can we tell a good quality multivitamin, a supplement versus one that's not? Yeah, unless you have your own lab, that's really difficult, right? <laughs> I mean, I can't take a supplement home and, and I certainly can't afford to uh, have a lab analyze it. Um, yeah, we have our own lab here. And so we do a lot of that and we don't sort of try to compare or sort of point out the bad players. But but in general, um, you know, it's interesting. They, are, you need to, I guess, just trust the company, maybe uh, dig a little deeper, verify, ask them about the testing that they're doing. That's not always easy, is it? Um, it really does come down to an element of trust, a good brand, a good company. Um, the, uh, is any of those labels helpful, USP or any of those? Yeah, they should be. Um, you know, some of those external qualifying, you know, like uh, um, NSF is actually very good. If you've got an NSF label, you know, those guys just go to a great deal of trouble. And actually, it's quite expensive. But NSF are, um, you know, if you've got an NSF label, then you know that they've really looked very closely at these things. Uh, you know, again, Kerry, you, you know, that, that description of the wild, wild west um, I, it can only really go so far. Like, yes, there are good players. And actually we, the, the bigger companies and the, and the really sort of um, the honest companies are really trying to make it hard for the dishonest companies and sort of the fly-by-nighters. Um, but we often hear, don't we, that there's no regulation in supplements, that they're just completely on their own. It's a wild west. It's not as bad as people would think. Um, there are two very strong regulatory bodies in the U.S., the FDA and the FTC, that, that um, are doing a pretty good job, at least for the bigger companies. And I'll, 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 I'll explain why I qualified that remark. But the FDA, of course, is concerned about um, drug claims that you might make, right? So they don't allow any nutrition sort of supplement to make a drug claim. If it's not a drug, then you can't make a disease claim. So they regulate very strongly, and they also have a system now where they go and they audit your facility and make sure that you're doing good manufacturing practices, good laboratory practices. So they've, they've come and they've audited us and they tell us, you know, they're mostly concerned with how good is your record keeping. Uh, they're looking at your shelf life and your stability data, um, the label claims and what tests that you've done to ensure that that label claim is correct. Um, so they are monitoring that and, uh, you know, we welcome that. We think that that's really good for our industry. The FTC is about truth in advertising. So they, uh, you know, they make sure that the claims that you're making are actually consistent with the, the ingredients that you're using and the level of the ingredient that you're using. Um, the one issue that I have there is that it is um, self-funded. So um, you know, they're not getting taxpayers' money. They, they operate on the fines that they levy on bad players. Um, and... Uh, it's my perception that, you know, the big companies are the ones that they would sort of look at first. It kind of annoys me, you know, they can't be everywhere at once, the FTC, but it kind of bugs me that you have these small companies that make outrageous claims and you hear it on the radio all the time. And uh, maybe they get, maybe they, the FTC goes after them, but they can disappear and pop up again. It's kind of like whack-a-mole. Um, but as a, so I think, I guess the take-home message is if you're a large company, uh, if you're a reputable company, 
then uh, you can trust them a lot more. Um, so a lot of it's sort of, uh, sort of judging that then, given that you don't have your own home lab. <laughs> MacuHealth, your science-born and tested solutions for visual performance, macular degeneration, and dry eye syndrome. New products coming soon. Embrace the science. Before we get into longevity, I just want to go over what you feel for yourself, the best and the worst diets. So if we look at the Mediterranean, the paleo, vegan, keto, uh, do you have a feeling on any of that? And you kind of alluded to it before about eating, you know, organic, you grow your own food, but have some, you know, people are very confused about all these diets. Yeah, it, it can be really confusing. And maybe uh, people sort of, uh, I've tried a lot of these, right? I've tried a lot of the different diets. I think a lot of it's uh, some, somewhat intuitive. I think if it's not a radical kind of a diet, like, you know, they're asking you to just have a, an all, I don't know, cabbage soup diet for the rest of your life, or, you know, um, then I think what you're looking for is balance and freshness and, um, you know, sort of as I alluded to earlier, if it doesn't have a label, if it's not over-processed, then I think you're in good shape. So, you know, I watched a movie one time, uh, was it called Super Size Me? <laughs> where the guy said, I'm just going to eat this uh, fast food diet for X amount and and uh, I remember that the, uh, his cardiologist that he went to first off said, oh, yeah, it doesn't really matter what you eat. And then like a few weeks into this diet, he said, what the crap, man, you're killing yourself. You've got to stop this, right? And uh, uh, so, you know, I think for most of us, it's fairly intuitive. It makes sense. If you're eating a Mediterranean-style diet, if you're getting healthy oils like olive oils, if you're not eating too much fried food and fast food, if you're eating lots of vegetables, then I think that, that is, uh, that's important. You talked about keto diet. I think that's really interesting too, right? Uh, because there's some belief that sort of um, there's a connection to you know, our genetics from thousands of years ago, and maybe paleo is more natural, and maybe all that protein and is, uh, is better for you. Um, certainly, it does seem to work when you cut back on carbs and you just sort of focus on some protein. Um, it certainly can melt away the fat. I mean... I had a six pack for the first time in years uh, after going on sort of trying the keto sort of plan for six months or so. I couldn't believe it. Uh, I don't know how sustainable it is. And I still believe that uh, the vegetables have those phytochemicals that we need to keep us healthy. So I actually wasn't um, strict keto. I, I considered vegetables to be free and I had a lot of protein. I just cut back on sort of white rice and white bread and stuff like that. Um, so, but uh, um, yeah, so I don't have strong impressions. I think whatever works for you, but you just need to be sensible uh, about the diet. But what I find really interesting, and maybe this is a bit of a segue into longevity, is, well, how often should you eat? Because there's a lot of... Um, oh, before we get oh, into this, yeah. I just want to, I, let me interrupt you, because there was yeah. a study done sure. by the Adventist Health in 2013 and showed the more vegetables you eat, you live longer, uh, that you could cut your chance of dying down by about 20%. Uh, and if you're on the Mediterranean diet, a different study and exercise, you can slow down aging. So uh, go, go back to your thought. I'm sorry to interrupt. Oh, no worries. Yeah, no, I, I think that there's a lot of truth to that. It's interesting. I believe that, uh, you know, there were some studies that looked at some health parameters, some metabolic parameters of uh, vegetarians um, versus um, sort of omnivores and, uh, and a healthy omnivore actually in some of those metabolic parameters looked a little better. And I thought that's curious. Um, it did boil down. I think there were a couple of theories about how, well, maybe it's because vegetarians eat a lot of fruits and there's a lot of sugar in the fruits. And so um, there may be other theories that emerge um, in general. Um, I think it's okay. Personally, I think it's okay to be omnivorous. I have a couple of daughters who are now vegetarians, but, uh, but for me, I focus on vegetables and fruits are great, but I feel like they're nature's desserts. And I know they've got a lot of really nice soluble fiber. So a little is good, but too much, I think is maybe caution warranted. You know, I, I guess we wouldn't have these type of teeth that we weren't supposed to eat some meat. <laughs> yeah, that's a good point. Yeah. <laughs> So let's talk about some of the longevity pathways, the sirtuins, AMPK, mTOR, uh, genetic variability. Uh, 
if you could talk a little bit about that and as far as longevity goes. Yeah, so um, sort of, I was really um, lucky in the last decade or so to be able to work with, um, with Richard Weindrick and Thomas Prohler. Uh, Richard Weindrick is a uh, gerontologist who has been studying uh, caloric restriction in, in monkeys for the last uh, decade or so. He's got a couple of science publications and it's based on, he was uh, Roy Walford's uh, postdoc or PhD student. And Roy Walford, uh, some of you may remember the, is it called Earth 2, the biodome in, in uh, Arizona? So this is where Roy Walford and, and seven other people went into that biodome and they, they wanted to create, maybe they were into, I can't remember the actual sort of motivation behind this. It may have been, you know, we want to establish colonies on Mars or something like that. So can we create our own ecosystem? And Roy Walford was always interested in caloric restriction. And, uh, and so when they started to run out of food in the biodome, he convinced people to stay there and to sort of cut the diet back and assure them that they would actually be healthier, not less healthy, if they cut back on the calories. And that goes back to Clive McKay in around you know, the 1930s, 1935. Clive McKay was a really interesting scientist who was studying you know, back between those two wars they're very interested in nutrition, right? And, and also, uh, you know, failure to thrive and how much protein, how many carbohydrates. So they're looking at macronutrients and its impact on lifespan and growth and things like that. And uh, so he came up with this plan, really nicely done, C-R-A-N, right? Caloric restriction with adequate nutrition, meaning get all the micronutrients that we talked about in your diet but just experiment in cutting back the calories, the macronutrients, the fat, the protein, the carbohydrates. And uh, it was really surprising. I'm not sure, Kerry, if you're familiar with that work, but he was the guy that discovered that if you cut back the calories on a rat by about 30%, that they lived like 50% longer. It was remarkable. And this really, uh, he did all sorts of other sort of really weird experiments too, you know, heterochronic parabiosis. Uh, he was very interested in aging. So this is where you get two animals, and in this case, an old animal and a young animal, and you sort of uh, surgically cause them to, to share their circulatory system. And mm -hmm. so he showed that the, that the older animal sort of became younger, had younger characteristics, and the younger animal sort of became older, right? So the, these weird kind of <laughs> funky uh, Frankenstein-type experiments Sort of led him to believe that there are soluble factors of anti-aging or aging in the body and and uh this uh you know it took them years really of like what's going on here is it slowing metabolism when you slow when you reduce the calories what's going on um it's since been repeated of course in worms and flies and yeast and mice and uh it was uh roy walford that was really interested in this when they came out of the biodome uh you know finally I think that they're, you know, if you do their sort of metabolic test, they, for all intents and purposes, look like they hadn't aged. So this really interested uh, um, uh, Rick Weindrick, and he started to do this colony of monkeys, and they had calorically restricted monkeys and those that weren't, and uh, again showed, yeah, the caloric restriction really seems to work. To, uh, you know, there are all of these symptoms of aging that you typically get, right, like diabetes, sarcopenia, and. Uh, and the calorically restricted monkeys are sort of doing a lot better on that front. Interestingly, if you go to the science, the papers that are published in science that he's done, um, they don't show a statistically significant difference between the monkeys that are ad libitum fed and those that are on caloric restriction. And you might ask, well, why? I thought this was kind of this miracle thing. Um, in, in America, when you do experimentation on animals, there are committees there um, that will uh, very strictly monitor how you're treating the animals so that they're being treated humanely. And, uh, and it turns out that the ones that are ad libitum are becoming diabetic and having cardiovascular conditions. And so they are mandated to treat them then with diabetic, you know, anti-diabetic drugs and all these things. So in many ways, actually kind of accidentally, they're mimicking the American situation, right? Where you have, uh, uh, you know, medical, facilities and techniques and surgery and drugs that are amazing at keeping us alive. But uh, what is our quality of life like? And, uh, and these monkeys kind of mirror that. So this is a fascinating area. So um, he was joined by Thomas Prohler, who is a geneticist. And he actually worked in, uh, I believe he worked in Lester Packer's lab. 
And he came to uh, Richard Weindrich and said, well, have you looked at the gene expression patterns in these animals that are on caloric restriction compared to uh, those that aren't? No, well, let's try it. Let's look at gene expression. So this is a gene chip right here, and it's looking at transcriptomics. So, you know, you think genomics, that's the gene, right? The gene level. And we know that it doesn't change as you age. Your DNA code is fixed for life. Um, you know, you may have some SNPs, some single nucleotide polymorphisms that make you different from me. For the most part, they're harmless, but sometimes lead to genetic illness. But gene expression is different, right? At the beginning of every, sort of at the start of every gene, you've got a promoter region and, and you've got sort of transcription factors that can influence whether or not that gene is transcribed and ultimately ends up being translated into a protein or not. So there's all sorts of stuff going on. And that's how we adapt to life, right? We adapt to you know, stress and other things by upregulating or downregulating certain genes. It's like a recipe book. Um, so maybe you need more curry today. Maybe you need more um, you know, sushi tomorrow. I don't know. But the, the genes are amazing. And they, they do these things called heat maps, right? Where you look at gene expression. And uh, we were interested to see if there was a change in gene expression as you age. Um, and this was actually inspired, Weinrich was inspired by the work of David Sinclair, right, who was working on the sirtuins, and he discovered that resveratrol impacted one of the sirtuins, uh, it was a, um, sure, a histone deacetylase, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so, um, you know, uh, so David Sinclair's work was really interesting, because he showed that resveratrol, which is a component of red wine, a polyphenol, really impacted epigenetics, meaning, um, you know, when you, these sirtuins impact the way that the DNA is folded around these uh, histones and the way that the, um, the transcription machinery can get to a certain gene is that it has to sort of loosen up in that area and allow access. So that's why basically every cell in the body has, you know, 23 chromosomes and all of the genetic material but a pancreas, which is you know, producing tons of insulin, is very different to a neuron or a muscle cell. So they're all specialized because of the way the epigenetics, the way that uh, you know, certain regions of the chromosome are opened up to, to allow access to the transcription machinery. And, and David Sinclair discovered that resveratrol seems to put the animal into sort of a survival mode and extends its life and its health. And so that uh, he was using massive doses so Weindrich said, well, why don't we use smaller doses in, in mice and see if that works as well? And um, along with Thomas Prohler, they looked at gene expression. So what's happening to gene expression? This is really the measurement of which genes are being expressed at high level, which genes are not being expressed at all, and everything in between. So there's 40,000 sort of um, RNA probes here. And you can, you know, with a single swab, sort of find out exactly what's going on they actually did discover that there are certain genes that do express themselves more as you age and some that express less. And so they really went into that with their heat maps. So we, uh, when we started partnering them, we, we said, well, rather than caloric restriction, are there some phytochemicals in nature? Not drugs, but you know, uh, if you look at that pattern of gene expression in typical aging, which might be this bottom line here, um, you know, you've got uh, high levels of expression, low levels of expression, you have, you know, different patterns. And then you might look at uh, this next line up top, which is um, those animals that are undergoing caloric restriction. And you can see they're quite different. So they're, um, you know, what they're finding, for example, is that they, if they're under caloric restriction, they're not as stressed in terms of um, um, oxidative stress. So then they're not expressing as many of these endogenous antioxidant genes and things. So you see some changes going on. So our task, we thought, well, let's screen some of these healthy phytochemicals. You know, what's in the purple corn? You know, these anthocyanins and different sort of things. Uh, what about essential fatty acids? What about the carotenoids? What about some, you know, we had this uh, mushroom. It's actually, uh, this one's called cordyceps sinensis. And you can see... It looks like the shape of a caterpillar, right? Because actually the fungus infects the caterpillar, kills it, and then the fruiting body sort of grows out of its head. And this has been used in China for centuries as an anti-aging ingredient. So we said, well, what about that? So we tested all of these things 
in all sorts of different tissues and did discover that there's a that they influence gene expression. So that the things that you're eating every day influence gene expression and in many ways can mimic um, something much more um, sort of much more drastic uh, in terms of uh, you know highly restricted nutrient diet. So you know that kind of opens some doors, doesn't it, to again uh, help us understand that a diet rich in fruits and vegetables is uh, is more than just impacting the microbiome. It's more than just impacting sort of uh, providing some of the vitamins and minerals, but also seems to be talking with our genes, impacting even the way that we age. So, as you bring up caloric restriction, one of the big uh, one of the big uh, fads right now, or things that are happening, I don't know if that's the right word, is is intermittent fasting or fasting. What do you think is the best way to do fasting? You know, people want to lose weight. They want to get healthier. You know, we, we, there have been studies, like you said, to show in, 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 in rodents that fasting definitely extends lifespan and fasting can make rodents healthier. Can it make us healthier as people? And what do you think is the best way to do it? There's different, different philosophies on fasting. Yeah. Um, so um, I remember, you know, my, chemistry professor, John F. Williams, who is like the master, sort of the, uh, the expert in the F-type pentose phosphate pathway. And that's kind of where I cut my teeth in biochemistry when I did a master's with him. And he used to always say the evidence points to people that fast regularly are more healthy. So uh, for, you know, 40 or 50 years, I've actually fasted once a month. Um, and then as we started to learn more about uh, intermittent fasting and things like that, I, a few years ago, actually even changed that to do sort of time-restricted feeding. So um, I sort of do a, um, uh, you know, between six or seven o'clock at night and 12 or one o'clock the next day, I don't eat. Um, I find, you know, who knows, because it's kind of difficult to see immediately the impact on aging. But the science does seem to indicate that uh, it's, you know, as I talked about caloric restriction, it seems that there's a lot of evidence now that it's not the lowering in the calories per se, but it is the fast in between those calories, which is basically how these, uh, these mice were treated and, the, and the, uh, the monkeys, right? They get a certain time to eat certain calories and they, they woof it down because they're hungry. And then there's this period of fasting before the next meal. So is it the fast itself that is causing the metabolic reprogramming to happen? Or is it the reduction in calories? And the evidence seems to point to it's the, it's the fast itself, that there's a metabolic reprogramming that's happening there. And uh, so, you know, that's, uh, you know, Heidi Pack published some papers in that area talking about how it's the fasting that drives the metabolic reprogramming. And I'm really interested in, I'm more interested in mechanisms. So I'm like, what's going on there? So um, there's a guy, uh, a British scientist named Hipkiss, Alan Hipkiss, who uh, talks about um, uh, sort of the relationship between glycolysis and the citric acid cycle, right? And uh, so we know in glycolysis, uh, that's sort of the first stage of energy production in the body. You may eat some, you know, you've got some glucose there. And it's going to break that. There's a series of chemical reactions and you produce a couple of molecules of ATP. And then you get down to this level of pyruvate where it's a three carbon sort of intermediate that then is fed into the, uh, uh, the citric acid cycle, the TCA cycle, and that produces a lot more. And it's producing these reducing equivalents that then end up um, creating that uh, electron motive force that produces a lot more ATP. So that's the powerhouse there. And he talks about glycation. And so he says, look, if you are eating a lot, then what you're doing is you're creating an imbalance between glycolysis and the citric acid cycle. And you get a buildup of these intermediates. And these three carbon intermediates very quickly turn into something called methylglyoxal, which is a very potent glycating agent. And uh, if you know about glycating agents, they form AGEs, right? Advanced glycation end products, very aptly named. Basically, what they're doing is that they are um, adding sugar to proteins and creating sort of a sticky end of the protein, which then causes cross-linking of the proteins. So every wrinkle that you can see on your face that's permanent, it's really a permanent cross-linked protein there caused by glycation. And a diabetic, of course, is someone who has 
basically variously uncontrolled blood glucose. So they have high levels of glycation. Almost every symptom that, uh, you know, that a diabetic has, whether it's cataracts or whether it's nephrology or these other things. Or, um, so it's all about microcirculation and, and glycation. Therefore, you have amputations and cataracts and all of these awful sort of side effects. It's really glycation that's causing that. So back to Hipkiss, he's saying, you know, you, uh, if you're constantly eating, then you have an imbalance in, the, uh, in these intermediates and you're going to have a higher level of glycation. And for me, that sort of the take-home message there is, you know, they used to say, well, you know, if you want to lose weight, eat five small meals a day. I, it, that may work to sort of raise your basal meta metabolic rate. But personally, I believe it may be at the expense of how well you age. And so, you know, this sort of ties into um, sort of the intermittent fasting paradigm. And there's one other scientist that I found very interesting, and that's Helen Blasara. So she did experiments with mice where she either cooked the mouse chow, their food, or not, gave them the raw mouse chow. And so what we've learned is that um, glycated end products are also in our diet. If you eat toast or fried food or you know, a steak that's nicely seared, um, the, the turkey that's got the beautiful brown crust on the, the, the skin, that, those are all glycated end products. And dietary glycated end products also have a similar effect to internally generated ones. They, there's a receptor of AGEs and that's called RAGE, right? R-A-G-E. So it's an inflammatory sort of promoter. Um, so in Vlasara's experiments, she found that kind of much like the caloric restriction experiments, um, that the animals that had low glycation diets lived longer. So I have talked to Weindrick and Proler about that saying, you know, is it possible that all that you did when you fasted your animals, you calorically restricted them, maybe you were just reducing their exposure to glycated end products and had the same effect as Helen Vasara's mice. So, so to me, it's like how much you eat um, may be less important than the fast, and certainly the content of your food, if it's low in glycated end products, may have a big impact on aging. So take home messages, it's, it's important. You know, and in, in cultures that do fasting, like the Jains in India or during Ramadan, they, they, they tend to be healthier and live longer. Yeah, yeah, it's really interesting. And I, um, I've sort of adapted to this, um, you know, um, this 16-8 schedule that I have that seems to work quite nicely. I, it's uh, socially, it's not easy sometimes when people want to have breakfast. So I'm not like super strict about it. Like, yeah, I'll eat breakfast with you. But I really shouldn't be. When you, <laughs> when you, when you talk about glycation, like the creme brulee on, on top of the... Yes. That, that, that skin on top of the sugar and the milk. And you, that's what's happening inside the body. That's like you said, that's why we're getting cataracts. And, and, uh, and that when eating every two hours was so fashionable... I agree with you. Eating every two hours is a very bad idea because you, especially if you're not eating, unless you're eating vegetables every two hours, yeah, these healthy food, but most yeah. people aren't, they're going to be glycating their proteins and mm -hmm. they're going to increase their aging. Yes, I, find, I think I find the best way to fast really is uh, I, I find the best way to fast is that uh, is to, is to, is to not eat dinner. Is to eat a big breakfast, a big lunch, maybe a late lunch like four thirty, but not eat a big dinner, not eat yes. dinner at all. I, like I try not yeah. to eat dinner at all. You know, I can't do it every night, and I find that to be the best way of doing it. Yeah, that may be a good way too. There's some sort of some research that suggests you shouldn't miss breakfast, and I say, well, I'm not missing breakfast. I'm just having it at one o'clock. <laughs> <Yeah>, because <laughs> so if you eat, whatever if, works for you, right? Because if you eat too late, you wind up on the su sumo wrestler diet, and that, that's I, how they yeah. feed the sumo wrestlers. They feed them, yes. and they they put it, they put them to sleep. Yeah. So uh, I think I think you've hit on an important thing, Kerry, because I've found that I wake up like with way more energy and less stiffness if I don't eat late at night. Like, and so. Much it's Much yeah, better. it's somehow that fast before you go to bed, you sort of go to bed a little bit hungry, but you wake up feeling great. And, and so really what it boils down to is like, we know that we should be avoiding all the simple sugars, right? We shouldn't be drinking soda. And even the diet sodas, there's some indication that they're not good for the microbiome. Um, we shouldn't be eating a lot of sweet calories, you know, a little bit's okay, because you want to have a happy life, you don't want to be miserable. But, but uh, the glycation story is like the next level of um, 
of how to sort of lower that glycation in your body and stay healthy. I think it's super important. What do you think about using a CGM, a continuous glucose monitor? Not for only not for diabetics. We know they need it, or pre-diabetics maybe. But how about for anti-aging? Yeah, I think that's interesting. We're we're doing a study. Actually, we're just about to start a study where we're using the continuous glucose monitoring uh, because there are a lot of natural products that help sort of control that level of uh, the, the glucose spikes, and so we're really interested in that. Um, I don't know about every day. I hadn't thought about that. It's kind of interesting. I do find that even if it's not permanent, like there was a time where I wore this little sort of body bug thing that told me sort of uh, how many calories I'm burning and, and stuff like that. Um, and then sort of did a, a food di diary. And uh, I only had to do that for a couple of months because I learned about myself. I learned what my habits were and my bad habits and my good habits. It was then actually that I learned that I probably ate more calories after dinner than I had at dinner time. And so I learned to sort of, that was when I first started to realize I've got to stop eating after dinner altogether. And that sort of led me on a healthier path. So yeah, these continuous glucose monitors might be good for people to help them understand what's going on when they drink a soda or have too much dessert uh, and, and might help us into good habits. It's a little bit like the, you know, the biophotonic scanner that I mentioned. When, uh, when you start to uh, measure things, then you can change behavior. And, uh, and I feel like an emotional response is a good thing. Like this is based on sound science. It's Raman spectroscopy. It's measuring carotenoids uh, you know, in an accurate way, non-invasively, uh, but it generally leads to a very emotional response. And I think you find that people don't change their behavior unless emotions are involved. And as an example of that in Australia in the 70s, they, they had a big campaign to stop teenagers from smoking. And they showed all the data, the graphs, the, you know, the, what it's doing to your lungs, what it's doing to cancer rates, what it's doing to all of these things. And uh, really without moving the needle until they had one advertising campaign that said, kiss a non-smoker and taste the difference. <laughs> and that moved the needle. It's totally, it's not scientific, it's emotional. But if you can marry the two, if you can measure and if you can impact a person's emotions, then uh, maybe you can get a change in behavior that will be good. I know with that biophotonic scanner, when I scan myself and the numbers high, it makes me very happy. Yeah. And I get and, a good, and, and patients, you know, when they, they go on supplements and it goes up, it makes them very happy. They start, yes. they start smiling. And that's a good, a positive reinforcing emotion. And then I've had bodybuilders that come in and say, man, I'm going to score great because I've been, I've been taking these protein drinks and look at the biceps. Mm -hmm. And they're very, they're kind of either angry or disappointed or shocked when they see that the score isn't high. And we say, look, easily fixed, eat more vegetables, you know, and uh, <laughs> it motivates. Let's finish up with uh, the anti, with sirtuins, mTOR and MPK. Uh, sirtuins are in, in, as, as an interesting set of genes for anti-aging. If you could tell us a little bit about that, and of course, there's been research to show that fasting helps the sirtuins as well as resveratrol. Yeah. Um, so, you know, in general, it sort of goes back to the epigenetics. So I'm not an expert in this area, Kerry. You've probably got guests on your show that, that have done more in this area. Um, but but I do find it very interesting, uh, you know, just again, the basic mechanics of it, where you have these, uh, uh, the DNA is, is wrapped around these uh, spools called um, histones, and they are very subject to chemical modification. And as we age, it's interesting, if you study the, the DNA and you study these modifications, you notice that uh, uh, there are some direct markers of aging. As you age, there are some more of these uh, um, methyl groups on, on, the, on the DNA that are um, impacting epigenetics. In other words, the way that the DNA unfolds and folds and interacts with itself. Um, so, you know, David Sinclair, of course, sort of really brought, brought the attention to that immediately with uh, the impact of, of polyphenols or resveratrol on the, one of the histone deacetylases. So when you deacetylase it, then it sort of, um, it, it changes its structural conformity, right? Um, I think really the take-home message is that it just opens up that, wow, like these things aren't um, imprinted in stone, uh, that you feel like you know, like I've got brown hair that turned gray, I've got blue eyes, I'm a certain height. I got these genetic characteristics from my parents 
I can't change that. Um, and you sort of feel a certain amount of hopelessness in your genetic makeup that you can't change. But in fact, I think what this, what the sirtuins and, uh, you know, methylation, all these things, epigenetics and, and transcriptomics or gene expression, what that's taught us is that we are not um, trapped by our genes, but that we can actually impact gene expression uh, again through our diet and lifestyle, our stress. Uh, you know, what's really, uh, what I find fascinating is some of the work that they did with, uh, with rats and, uh, and epigenetics, where um, say they had um, a mother rat. Uh, if, you, if you groom the little baby rats, if, I guess they're called pups, right? So if you've got a paintbrush or something and you just groom them when they're first born, it calms them down. They end up sort of being sort of fairly calm. Um, the mother, how, what her environment is like when she is pregnant with those, with those baby rats can impact their life forever. So if she's born into, if the mother's born into an area of paucity and danger, like food scarcity, then she's very nervous. She's, she leaves the nest a lot and, uh, and then has to sort of come back, uh, you know, to feed the pups. Um, all of these things impact sort of the methylation and sort of the, the stuff that's going on with the histones. And it has a connection with these sirtuins that impact them for life in terms of whether or not they're relaxed or whether or not, whether or not they're stressed. So, uh, you know, this is uh, stuff that puzzled us for a long time about how the behavior of the mother can impact the child in utero. Uh, it's not changing the genes per se, but it's, in cha it's changing the modification to those genes and therefore impacting the ability of the transcriptional machinery to, to you know, whether it's suppressing the, uh, the transcription or actually enhancing it. So this is sort of where it's all connected. So I'm not an expert in the sirtuins per se, but just the bigger picture is that there's a huge impact uh, and, and diet and lifestyle can impact the gene expression and help us to be more healthy. I think the point is that the, the genes uh, load the gun and the lifestyle pulls the trigger and lifestyle now is 70 to 80% of your health where we used to think it was the other way around. It was genes were 70 to 80% of your health, but now we realize it's epigenetics and it's lifestyle. Yeah, it's so interesting. You know, uh, when we think about life expectancy 100 years ago, um, you know, in, in uh, sort of 1900 or so, the average life expectancy of a man was 47 years old, around 1901. And for a woman, for a woman it was about 50. And when it came to causes of death, we didn't really seem to have much control, right? It was tuberculosis, pneumonia, heart disease. There are a lot of accidents. Now we're kind of living in this age where we can intervene in many of these things. We have cars that are much safer uh, and we can intervene and we understand the causes of the disease. So now it's almost like the control is in our hands, as you said. You know, it's almost a choice now. If you want to live a long, healthy life, uh, I believe it's about education and then about uh, action. And, uh, and we don't want to be like Captain Cook's sailors and just say, this is not fit for a human. You know, for some people, it is more important to sort of enjoy their life and smoke and drink and not eat healthy. But, uh, um, you know, we have a choice and uh, I hope we make the right one. And as we learn more and more about what we can do to be healthy, you know, whether it's... Uh, just take a basic multivitamin and understand the triage theory, whether it's about, you know, how we eat and whether we're doing, uh, you know, uh, glycating our bodies or whether we're avoiding that with, without too many simple sugars. There are the steps that we can make that I believe that really make the most important difference in our life, which is um, compression of morbidity, right? We don't want to live to 100 and be sick for 20 years. I, I'd rather live to 90 and be healthy all the days of my life. You know, die young as late in life as possible. That's the goal. So that brings me up to my last question. And you kind of alluded a little bit. And I want to thank Dr. Mark Bartlett. You've been so generous with your time and you're such a wealth of knowledge. And it's I could talk to you all day and all night and into tomorrow. Uh, but give us four or give us give us your takeaways to longevity, to living a long, healthy life. What does Dr. Mark Bartlett do? They keep him healthy, his family healthy, uh, or at least what you do to keep yourself healthy. So, because sometimes you can't really control even your family what they do. What do you yeah, take away? Thanks. 
Well, I think I, I put as my foundation nutrition. That's kind of how we kicked off the hour, right? So making sure that I do get all of the uh, micronutrients that I need. So that means eating a healthy diet first and foremost, but my insurance policy is a multivitamin, a multivitamin mineral that sort of makes sure that, uh, you know, just as an insurance policy, no matter how healthy your diet, there may be a gap somewhere. And that's all the multi does, right? It's a, you know, I'm eating healthy, but otherwise maybe there's a gap. Maybe I'm not getting quite enough zinc. So the multi just kind of helps take care of that. Um, the other thing is I look at my metabolism. So, and, uh, and cause I don't want to screw up now my perfect, uh, all of the enzymes are working. They've all got the cofactors that they need. How do I look after metabolism and make sure that there's not a, a, a cross wire there? Um, that boils down to staying physically active. I'm not overdoing it, but I stay physically active, you know, walk or ride a bike every day, um, a little bit of uh, resistance training and eating healthy so that the, the GI is healthy. I, I believe that you know, keeping the GI healthy with you know, fibers and vegetables and staying physically active, that's what I need to do to make sure that I'm not uh, metabolically uh, lacking there. Um, then, uh, then there's the glycation story. I don't want to be glycated. So my, my dual approach there is I do uh, a time-restricted feeding. I don't eat after dinner um, and I avoid simple sugars and, uh, and, I, and I don't eat too much. And I feel like that then will take care of the glycation, which was one of the fastest ways to aid your body. Um, and uh, if you do that right, uh, then you should be, uh, that should re reflect on your skin as well. So I don't believe that we have to be calorically restricting. I don't think we have to be that strict, but I think that we can pay attention to some, you know, a little bit of time restriction on your feeding and not eating too much. Um, and uh, yeah, I, uh, I think that that sort of, those are the three things, the cornerstones that cover it for me. And a little bit of exercise? Yes, definitely. So I want to thank Dr. Mark Bartlett again. He's such a wealth of information and he's such a nice person. And I really appreciate you sharing all this information and joining me today. If somebody wants to find out more about Dr. Mark Bartlett, how can they do that? Um, you can go to markbartlettphd.com. Um, I think that's my website. Um, so I'm sort of starting to build that a little bit. I'm not quite at the Kerry Gelb area where I've got that many uh, YouTube videos yet, but um, I, you know, stay tuned. I'm writing a book right now on sort of seven, seven secrets to healthy aging. And uh, a lot of the things that we've talked about today will come out in that and just sort of uh, some of the science behind it, some of the amazing stories that you get from science. There's some great characters like Captain Cook and, and others uh, and Bruce Ames. Uh, I think the stories of these scientists is just fascinating. And then some practical tips like we talked about today on how to age well. Well, thanks again, Dr. Bartlett. You're amazing. I really appreciate it. This is Dr. Kerry Gelb for Open Your Eyes. Until next time, thank you. OIE Broadcasting is the emerging leader in social media. We use scientific entertainment to drive more patients into your office. Visit OYEbroadcasting.com and sign up today. Your eyes and your vision are under attack, damaging blue light from the sun. Your phone, your computer, your tablet, even light bulbs and car headlights is constantly bombarding you. The good news is our eyes actually already have a line of defense to counter the effects of blue light. This defense is made up of three pigments called carotenoids. MacuHealth with Micromicel, the only supplement with the exclusive patent on all three macular carotenoids and Micromicel technology. Fitting multifocal contact lenses presents a big opportunity to meet patient needs while growing your practice. Alcon is your partner, not only with our innovative portfolio, but through e-learning. Learn to enhance your multifocal strategy today with the Alcon Experience Academy. Each generation was supposed to be healthier than the last one. Lifespan was supposed to be increasing. We were supposed to be in this paradise by now. Instead of getting healthier and healthier, it seems to have gone the opposite way. Millennials were projected to be the first generation in history to not outlive the generation before them. We are certainly headed for 
disaster. I think a lot of people are beginning to question the whole story. We live in a time where the paradigms are shifting. And the optometrist, in my opinion, is one of the best kept secrets. The public doesn't realize about going to the eye doctor. So many different diseases actually manifest in the eye. The back of the eye is the only place in the body that you could actually see the blood vessels. Completely non-invasively, you could screen thousands of people, not just for their eye health, but for their whole body health. Because this disease is here, it's also gonna be here. And I can look into the back of my eyeball, and there are expert doctors on the ground who are looking at my eyeball while I'm doing it. The eye is the canary of the mind. The eye is the kingdom. Will everyone please open their eyes? Since I bought Safe For You, my dad makes me clean his boat. It's natural y es un buen producto. Every time I go back to school, my mom always makes sure that I have my Safe For You products. I bring extra and my roommates certainly don't mind. It's a good thing I had Safe For You to clean up after this little guy. When my hands get dry, I like to wash them with Safe For You. And most importantly, the reason why I buy Safe For You is because it's safe for me and you.